Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Joseph Lyons, and this is Bottlenecks, a podcast by the UBC Supply Chain and Operations Association. I should also say, Happy New Year. This is episode four and our first since the start of 2022. We originally had this episode scheduled for release in January, but my team and I are students who have obligations in our personal and academic lives, which ultimately take precedence over this podcast. Since the beginning, the Bottlenecks podcast has been a passion project for us to dissect the big issues happening in the world and see the world at large through a new lens. We wanted this podcast to be something we do for fun, while also ensuring that we are creating a high-quality product. So, if you've heard our past work and have been hungry for more, thank you for your patience and for being interested in what the excellent guests we bring on have to say about their field. One manifestation of sustainability, though, that I'm very interested in is the circular economy. In December, I spoke with one Vancouver entrepreneur who has embraced and adopted the concept. Mark Wandler is the co-founder and strategic brains behind the Vancouver company Sustainable. Sustainable makes baked goods and baking mixes using beer waste, which is collected from breweries in Vancouver. I first heard about Sustainable and Mark in 2019 at an event held by UBC's Social Enterprise Club, where I tried a cookie and found out that baking with beer waste can actually taste really good. I always loved that Sustainable embodied the philosophy of circular economy, incorporating the idea that one person's trash is another's treasure into its business model. But I'll let Mark explain himself what the circular economy is, as well as how he turned Sustainable from a university project into the forward-thinking company it is today. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for being with, uh, being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joseph. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I mentioned a bit about you and about Sustainable, but uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about yourself and about Sustainable um, and how how did that start? Yeah, sure. So it actually started at, at UBC Solder. Um, I did my MBA there and a class called Tech Entrepreneurship, where you kind of come together as a group, have an idea, and then try and iterate a business out of it. Um, that's how Sustainable started. So basically a colleague came from the beer industry. Uh, he mentioned that they had a byproduct and it was becoming increasingly a problem for them. And so we just started digging into it. What could we do with the byproduct? We looked at it as a fuel source. We looked at it uh, to make like coasters and stuff using mycelium and whatnot. And then we looked at it as a food source. And so for me, circular economy, like when I started going to UBC, I chose the solder program because of its focus on sustainability. Um, and so I wanted the highest use case possible, which I feel is feeding humans. That's what the grains were grown for. And I also come from a background in uh, healthcare prevention. So my undergrad's in kinesiology. I worked closely with dietitians. And the number one thing that's missing from the North American diet right now in terms of macros is fiber. Uh, most people don't even get 50%. So. Our cookies, for example, have 25% of your daily fiber, which is great. Uh, Everybody loves a good cookie. You provided testimonial about how it tastes good. Um, So that's, and I can tell you the first iteration of what we made did not taste good. So like now we mill the grains when I first, uh, any startup knows you try and do something cheaply and then you try and do better and better. So we actually 
blended it in a Vitamix and people's like throats were like all scratchy because it was like so coarse. Um, but you could tell they wanted to like it because they want to like the story, right? Like we want, we're getting to the point where we know climate change is a problem and we're trying to find ways to mitigate it. And the number one way we can do that is make sure we utilize our resources as best as possible. So that's kind of where it started. I actually came to an MBA and thought I was going to leave and go back to the corporate world for five to 10 years before starting something up. Um, but the pull, the timing, everything about this business just would not let me put it down. And so we started Suscrainable. I lured a friend out from Alberta. Another friend kind of started it. And then, yeah, the rest is three years of a lot of hard work, a pivot because of COVID and uh, just keep going, trying to keep the dream alive. And just to confirm, did you know about circular economy and what that entailed going into your MBA? Or was that something you discovered or learned about at UBC? Uh, I discovered it at UBC. So I knew like the term sustainability, um, but the circular economy and like donut economics and all that. Uh, I learned it all and just haven't haven't put it down since. Do, do you mind kind of giving uh, me and, and also the listener a bit of a refresher on what that entails generally? Just a kind of summary. Yeah, the circular economy is built off of a couple of pillars. So it's basically... The, the main concept is how do we design out waste uh, and keep keep materials in use as long, long as possible. Um, I come at it with like almost the same, I take it back to grade school and think about thermodynamics and there's always gonna be a little bit of waste. So I prefer the, the concept of circular economy to zero waste. Uh, zero waste I think is an ideal, but I don't think we ever kind of get there. But the circular economy, and to me the biggest thing, the easiest way to communicate that and how we could move forward with it in a kind of way that everybody understands it is putting impact metrics ahead of financial metrics. So I think right now the world and business relies on finance first, everything else kind of second. I think we need to, if we're looking at like the triple bottom line and all that, uh, people planet profit, we need to put impact metrics first so we can create numbers because everybody kind of numbers is that universal language. So create those impact numbers first and then make sure the finances, make sure you're constantly break even or above and you're doing, you're, you have your eyes on profitability, but that's not your sole purpose. Like it's about providing a higher level value. And we do that by focusing on impact metric first. Where do you see, you know, the general business environment relative to where sustainable is now and, and how hard do you see like other companies need to work? Because Sustainable is a smaller company, and so I imagine it's easier to move around than a than a large corporation with a with a big board. Um, it's easier to move around, but it's harder to get stuff done because mm. we still need to kind of create the partnerships and, and whatnot. Um, mm. And until we kind of get our own facility, which is we're finally we validated the market, and we're kindly finally at that step to try in twenty twenty two to raise money and start our own facility but right now i think the world um there's not a ton of circular economy examples in the truest form a lot of what we're doing is adding circular loops into a linear economy and i think that's just because we're testing it out people are still learning about it um i believe the circular economy like it's it's what's happening out in nature it's where we're we'll eventually potentially get to but until the leaders in business start 
making circular economy a priority, I don't think it's like, I don't think the economy's going to pivot that way. It's still going to be like a lot of hard work and startups like we need to, sustainable probably needs to exit to a bigger corporation and then build circular economy into their models. So that's kind of what, what I'm doing. If sustainable doesn't make it, like I'm always hopeful and uh, we're remaining optimistic that we do. But I was talking to like my mentor in the circular economy who is at Sauter. And he was just saying like, the longer you pursue this, the more employable you're gonna be to any organization because the world is moving this way. So he's just like, keep going. <laughs> well, that's really nice. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to come back to some of the things you've mentioned, but um, before we get there, Bottlenecks is a supply chain podcast. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe describe, summarize the end-to-end supply chain for, for sustainable, um, you know, the notable things. I, I imagine, you know, the beer waste side further upstream, and I'd love to learn more about that personally. Sure. Um, and we'll, we'll take Vancouver because every kind of city is a little bit different. And I'll give you an example of like Vancouver's urban, very dense um, and farmers kind of live far away, which was a traditional outlet before versus like places like Calgary, where I'm originally from when we did a little bit of customer discovery there, the breweries don't quite have the same problem because they still have easy access to the farmers transportation. Like it's not gridlock farmers here. If, if a brewery is lucky enough to have that relationship, it takes them probably about four hours round trip to get grains back to the farm. So mm-hmm. not something you really want. Farmers don't really want to be spending their time doing that. Um, but yeah, jumping into the full supply chain. So I'll talk, take it from like grain to the very beginning of what we kind of evaluated. We don't deal with that yet, but it starts at the farm. People grow barley. My business partner actually comes from a farm where they grow barley. So that's been fun and it's been great to have him as a resource. Um, yeah, they grow the grains there. Then for the brewing industry, it goes to a malting house and gets malted. And they're basically the main distributor um, for the breweries. Uh, for that point forward, there's one of the reasons we decided to go with craft breweries is because they spend a lot more time sourcing higher quality grains. And they kind of care a little bit more about their inputs than the massive breweries out there that are just looking for uh, economies of scale. So we've chosen to partner up for the highest quality grains. They import them. I know one of our breweries, we haven't dug down deep with many, but one of our breweries gets it from Southern Alberta, a malting house in Southern Alberta. Uh, They'll then brew the grains. And basically the first step in that is to steep the sugar out of the grains. Um, And that's all they're they're taking from it. So from an impact perspective, they're actually only using 32% of the grain. We had an a student do a full research project. Um, and it was, that was their analysis was 32% of the grains get used if we only use the sugar. Uh, that's where we kind of take over right now. And the supply chain side gets really messy as with probably any, any startup uh, in their early stages. Um, so we contract dry, which has meant it's gone to any of three facilities. I think the fourth we almost, but we never ended up using. But anyways, um, there's very limited technology that can do this right now. So, uh, and we basically just get excess capacity. So our main bottleneck is that drying step. 
Um, this is also the part where we have to stay within food safety regulations. Um, we have a certain time limit because as soon as those grains uh, get taken out of the mash tun, they, they the like clock starts because they're they're going to deteriorate their seventy percent moisture level. Um, oxygen's now getting to it as it cools. It enters a danger zone, and we basically have to dry as much as possible before we reach the end of that danger zone. So we go, it rapidly gets dehydrated um, and then it's shelf stable. So then we can either mill it right away. We can hold on to it for a bit before we mill it. Um, but once it's shelf stable, the lifespan on it, I've talked to somebody who's doing this in the States and has been doing it a little longer than us. They said that they talked to a food scientist who estimated 25 years minimum shelf life um, if stored properly. So grains traditionally have a pretty good shelf life. Um, but yeah, he said, because the sugars are gone, because you're getting it to a moisture level that's, um, we're drying to about four or 5%. So he's like, nothing really can go bad for consumers though. We're, we're looking and we're doing shelf life testing slowly. So we have our baking mixes up to like a year. Um, but yeah, from that point on, it's the, the flowers there and we can use it. Um, and I'll just talk about traditionally what's been done and what's currently happening is if sustainable doesn't use the byproduct. So there's a few breweries who are lucky enough and um, it goes to farmers. Now farmers will try and use this as feed, um, but they can't use it all. And if whatever doesn't get used gets composted, hopefully. Um, there are some breweries who say that goes to farmers, but I've seen waste management trucks come and pick it up. I strongly believe that there's <laughs> lies being told and that is actually just going to landfill. Um, and with like the methane problems we hear and stuff like that, that's probably what's happening, which sucks. Um, and I think that's why there's a big call for transparency in the, the food industry and stuff and why everybody wants to start seeing the back end so that we can kind of snake through the lies. But yeah, that's, that's a little bit, uh, you can poke a few stony holes, but that's kind of how it goes. Okay. And, and that was mostly upstream, but just, and Further down from you guys, it's you sell on your website and in stores. Is that right? Yeah. So we will uh we started out originally selling just baked goods. Um, our goal was actually going to be partnering up with uh universities and selling it into academic institutions because we know students are really big on it and they also love coffee. So positioning it at coffee shops for a nice little um high fiber snack, keep you going for an extra two or three hours with your coffee. Um, and fiber is actually great. I, the one thing I found now, there's not, I haven't found any research to back this up because we haven't had time. Um, but I find like when I have one of our cookies with a coffee, I find the caffeine spike and drop off isn't as high. So you get kind of that energy and it kind of stays up, which fiber is meant for your digestion to go slower. So it, it theoretically makes sense, but obviously it would still have to be tested. Um, but yeah, now, now it's baking mixes primarily. We're starting to get uh, other businesses reach out about the flour. There is a really small business who's just starting up. She's creating par-baked pretzels for breweries and pubs um, off our flour. She tried starting to produce it herself and she came to us because she's like, oh my God, this is so much work. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. And hopefully if we launch the facility, there's going to be a lot more businesses that can access the flour because we'll be able to produce a lot more. Okay, I see, I see. And I, I may have missed it um, when you talked about 
the end to end earlier, but when you first started uh, Sustainable, you know, did you have the the end to end process in mind, like from the farmers, or were you mostly in contact with breweries? Like, hey, can we can we get your waste? What what did that look like? Yeah, so the first conversations were with breweries and bakeries. Uh, we asked bakeries if they'd ever used it. Would they use it? Because we we were basically just thinking, let's create the flour and kind of sell the flour. Um, breweries talked about what their current waste stream was. So they were pretty um, open to telling us what happened. We also chatted with a few craft ones. So they're the ones most likely to have the um, relationship with farmers. We actually also talked to some of the organic breweries because if we launch our own facility, um, that's who we'd like. We'd like to partner up with them because they're obviously doing a really good job sourcing grains and really into high quality inputs. Um, but yeah, no, on most of the early conversations, the farmer conversations, basically like my co-founder farmed the grain since he was, he talks about how he was on the combine at seven. So he was <laughs> operating a million dollar piece of machinery at seven years old and collecting grains in the field. So he's, he's pretty much an expert. I think it's really cool that Sustainable exists in the world with the business model that it has. Um, could you tell me about the you know, I mean, of course, there were the internal factors, like I'm sure you had to go through the stages of funding and have a business model canvas do all of the necessary entrepreneurship work. Um, and so there had to have been internal competencies to make it work. But what were some of the external factors that made this kind of circular economy, circular supply chain possible? Um, so... I think one, it's the breweries. Um, this is starting to become a bigger and bigger problem for them. So government regulation is starting to like increase uh, regulation around waste disposal and stuff like that, which is putting pressure on waste disposal companies, which means their fees towards the breweries have gone up. So they've been very open with us taking um, the grains whenever we want. So it's like a $0 input for us. That being said, it's very expensive to process it. Um, but yeah, no, that, that was kind of one of the biggest points is like we had a free input. And so when we really first started doing this, we would take like a small bucket and we were oven drying. Like I said, first iteration was in a blender. And the first step in food for me is can you make this taste good? Because people like there's a few things out there that people will eat that doesn't taste good because it's just like marketing has done such a good job saying this is like the healthiest thing ever for you or whatnot. Um, but for me, for something to really take off and for it to have an impact that it, it needs to taste good first. And can we make it taste good? So then we solve the tasting good. Next is, can we actually, is there the opportunity to produce this at scale or do we have to kind of go back to research? Um, and so that's where we, and that's where Clinton and me did a lot of work on researching what the technology is out there worldwide. I think for the circular economy to really take hold, we need the government needs to focus a little bit more on business model innovation and a little bit less on tech innovation. There is so much tech out there. Um, there's so much funding that's going to tech and we're creating tech that sits on the shelf. So why not let's start creating a little bit more incentives and grants to 
to get that tech off the shelf and get it in use and, and put it to use and really start to transform. Um, Cause I think that's what's really missing is business model innovation to push the circular economy forward, not new technology. And mm. we'll see and my predictions in the next five years, they're gonna start figuring that out, but it's, it's hard to tell. You never know. We have a different, I think the biggest gap is the generational gap. So as I go seek out funding, there's a ton of people in their early thirties who would want to invest in this, but don't have a ton of money. And then there's the 55 plus generation who's got a decent amount of wealth, but they literally keep saying people don't pay more for sustainability. And I'm like, people, your generation don't pay more for sustainability, but market research is showing more and more that like the under 45 demographic is willing to pay up to a, twice as much in some cases for sustainable yeah. products. So um, there's still work to be done. There always will be work to be done, but I think those are kind of some big steps. The key for us was, yeah, having free inputs to the beer industry. Our other founder who's no longer with us also worked in the restaurant and beer industry. So uh, she was a huge asset to have because uh, your podcast is named Bottleneck. So one of our bottlenecks is the dehydration time. And so there was a day because we get it for free. We're often just like overlooked and we, we'd always message the day before. Like we were super organized. We messaged the day before. Be like, are you brewing tomorrow? Yes. Cool. But on two occasions we'd message the next day or show up and they're like, oh yeah, we decided not to brew today. Like they would make that decision and just not let us know. Meanwhile, we have a, a booking, which is costing us um, at time, so it would range anywhere from basically $500 to I think 1100 was the max price um, that we paid. But we have a slot that we're going to pay for. And if we don't get grain there, we just lost a ton of capacity and a lot of money to us as a startup. So she would be like on the phone, phoning like eight breweries at a time. And that's actually how we ended up with um, more brewery partners is and more people knowing about what we did was just by accident. I think the Vancouver might also play a part in, in sustainable success from my perspective, just because Vancouver has that environment of breweries and also the, the people, I think you mentioned that people care more about sustainability. I've only ever lived in Vancouver in, in Canada, but it seems like that's, you know, a city that where, where the people really do care about that. And there's also a bunch of other really cool sustainability related companies in Vancouver, um, like tea leaves or um, chop value. And so maybe this is also like a good cluster for sustainability. Do you, do you think so? Yeah, there's definitely a good underbelly of circular economy um, companies and networks popping up. Uh, the biggest problem that has yet to be solved though is real estate. Mm. Real estate, because um, circular economy, you need some, some companies in there that aren't gonna make a ton of money, but are going to basically allow the circular economy to exist. So it's almost like parks, right? Like parks, you need a certain amount of parks to provide great living space. We need a certain amount of space that's just like it's subsidized housing. You almost need these subsidized business who are gonna take on these big problems and are doing it for um, an impact reason. And, mm -hmm. it, and it could just be that startup cost too, right? Because there's going to be a lot of learning involved. Like we've done, we've done more work. I just had an advisor the other day. I think it was last month. He came up and he's just like, 
I can't believe you've managed to keep this going for three years. Like, he's like, there's a ton of value in this company if you can crack it, but there's so much work and just watching you over the past two years has been like nuts to see how you've managed to keep it afloat, even with COVID completely like we were food service, food service like evaporated overnight. Mm-hmm. And then we had to build it back up. And most of our partners now in, from the early days are, have either gone under or are like way too stressed out to entertain anything and are like the most succinct business model because they constantly have to change. But mm-hmm. it's an interesting time. Um, we'll see what happens in 2022. We thought 2021 was going to be better than 2020. And I don't know. <laughs> It's, it's hard to tell which one was better or worse. <laughs> Hopefully this new year is uh, going to be a little better for everyone. Yeah, I'm hoping so. I'm, I'm, my fingers are really crossed. I don't know if we can do another year of tw- like 2021, but we'll see. That remains to be seen. Yeah. If I can ask one last question, Mark, um, I want to go back to something you mentioned right at the start. Could you tell me a bit about what you have in mind for sustainable's future what do you what do you hope to achieve in terms of the company but also in terms of circular economy and circular supply chain yeah so our goal in 2022 is to launch vancouver's first uh dedicated food upcycling facility there's some other upcycling facilities going on but they're not food related um so we want to launch that and basically create create a micro factory model kind of similar to chop value and set up hubs in urban sites kind of across North America. Just like Chop Value saw that there's chopsticks in every city and you should use them locally, we're kind of feeling the same thing with there's breweries in urban cities everywhere. It's actually a barley byproduct. So spent grain represents, if you include it in food waste numbers, uh, 3% of food waste on its own, which is one byproduct, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. That one byproduct can take up 3% with all the food out there. So um, it just shows how much, how many people drink beer and how it can be a really good starting off point. Um, it's a great story. So that's, that's the thing. We're just going to keep kind of marketing it. There's so many different ways we can market this. There's so many different ways we can play on it. Um, so yeah, the biggest thing for us is launching a facility because this contracted all over the place business model uh is completely draining us and the every time we pivot every time we do anything it just keeps reinforcing that the number one thing we need is to relieve this bottleneck which is production Mm. because it drops costs it it makes it easier it allows us to truly partner up with craft breweries so as opposed to taking just like one batch randomly we could actually become their waste management go-to um so we might even be able to get paid to take the byproduct so there's a lot of things we can do in terms of like product i think we're going to stick with baking mixes um for now and there's like we've we've told our customers we know what they want next um we know what next SKUs will look like we know what our next byproduct would look like if we can launch the the micro facility um so yeah, now it's just raising funds and executing in 2022. You made it. Thank you for sticking to the end of the episode. 
Research for this episode was done by myself and Catherine Jang, who is also our club co-president. Again, we want to thank you for your patience in letting us create the podcast in a way that works with our schedules. I want to say thank you also to Mark Wandler for dedicating his time to us a few days before Christmas across time zones for an interview. You should be able to find Sustainable Cookies at the UBC Bookstore, as well as other products on the Sustainable website and some select supermarkets. You can follow Sustainable on social media at Sustainable, and you can find us on Instagram at ubc.scoa and on Facebook and LinkedIn at UBC Supply Chain and Operations Association to stay up to date on all of our events.